Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Richard. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, the Bible says, um, answer a fool according to his folly. And then the next verse says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Um, why do I say that? Well, because this evening, live at five, we're going to dip into Proverbs. And we've had a series through Proverbs for ages now. We're going to dip into Proverbs. That's the passage we're looking at. Um, so live at five on our YouTube channel, uh, if you want to explore more of what that means. And that has nothing to do with this morning, though. Um, so let's pray, shall we, and ask for God's help as we look at his word. Our great God in heaven, we pray very much that you would build your kingdom as you have promised to do so. And we pray then your mercy that you would build your kingdom here in our lives, in our church, in our communities for the glory of your son. So as we come to your word, uh, please would you use it uh, in our lives to do good to us and through us to do good to the world around us. Please help us now. Amen. Uh, I wonder how you would describe wonder. Wonder. Um, The dictionary online, of course, uh, tells me this. This is what wonder means. The quality of exciting, amazed admiration or rapt attention or astonishment at something awesomely mysterious. Wonder is a response. It's a reaction. Uh, Wonder is is to kind of look at something and then kind of know in your belly that it is more. It's a bit like I'm looking at the night sky. You look at the night sky and, and you see the stars. And as you see the stars, you realize that those tiny little pricks of light are actually colossal. And they are burning at phenomenal temperatures and they are mind-boggling distances away. The light that has come to our eyes has been traveling for aeons in order to get here. And, and, and then as we see that, we realize that those little pricks of light are just the beginning of space. And they're just the kind of cover page to a, an expanse of whirling marvels that go beyond. And we feel wonder, breathtaking, heart-thumping, staggering. Delight, I guess. I think wonder is a delight. It's it's a joy, almost. That pulse of emotion that surges through our veins. And it is hard to describe what wonder is. And it's often, if we ever experience it, so short-lived, isn't it? Wonder is so short-lived. Now, why is that? Maybe maybe because, as C.S. Lewis said, it's because we were made to wonder at something that is beyond this world. There's nothing really that can satisfy our wonder in this world. And maybe because, as C.S. Lewis also says, our capacity for wonder is inhibited by ignorance, like children who are content to make mud mud pies in the slums because they can't imagine a holiday at the beach. Uh, C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. We are too easily wondered. And wonder wilts when it is coddled with crumbs. You know what I mean by that? When When we gorge our capacity to wonder on trivial tripe. And we lose appetite for real wonder. We fail to see what is right in front of our faces. We miss the immensity of of something excellent and how it excels that. Something that surpasses explanation and understanding. Wonder. Wonder. What on earth has wonder got to do with a story about a vineyard? That's what our passage is, isn't it? It's a story about a vineyard. How do we get here? We're going through Matthew's gospel. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, The hiddenness is now over. Jesus steps into the spotlight. 
presents himself to Jerusalem as the king. And as the king, he storms the temple. Uh, the religious leaders watch on. They're not very pleased about what he's doing. And we saw last time that they come and ask him in verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things? As their question and in response, in the temple, Jesus answers with three stories. Now we saw the first story last week, the story about the two sons, story that shows these religious leaders that they are not interested in Jesus' authority. They are hard in their hearts. Now that was the first story, but Jesus isn't done with them. So our passage today, if you look how it begins, verse 33, Jesus says, listen to another parable. And then if you glance down to how the passage ends, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus's parables, they knew he was talking about them. Jesus has them in his crosshairs. And he tells this story and the story is a man who has a vineyard. He rents the vineyard to some farmers and he goes away. And when it's time for the fruit, he sends a delegation of servants to collect it. And the farmers attack them and kill them. So he sends more servants and the farmers do the same. And then finally, he sends his own son. What is it about? Well, in, in some ways, this is a story aimed at these religious leaders. It's about them. It's, it's about how they and their kind for a long time have abused their responsibility. Collectively, they are guilty of terrible things. And yet really at its heart, this story that Jesus tells is a story about sin. Right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, uh, the angel tells Joseph uh, that Mary's baby is to have the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The weight of that is awesome. Jesus is the saviour. God sent his son into the world to save the world, crucially to save his people from their sins. The saving mission of Christ is a sin-saving mission. That's who he is. And if we're to belong to the people of Christ, then it requires us to look sin in the face, to look our sin in its face. And so when this Jesus, the one who is the saviour from sins, tells a story about sin... We must pay very careful attention to what he says and how he describes the features of sin. What does he say? Sin forgets. Look how Jesus begins the story. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. This is work of careful preparation. This vineyard has everything it needs. Everything it needs to be safe. Everything it needs to be productive. And Jesus, as he tells us, he's riffing off the prophet Isaiah, old Isaiah. Isaiah 5 begins like this. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. A vineyard lovingly provided for a vineyard given the ideal conditions for life. The story about sin begins with grace. It, the vineyard owner is God in the story. And, and for God, he, his people, Israel, were plucked out of slavery and planted into the promised land, given everything they needed. And that story of Israel reflects the story of all creation. In the beginning, God created a world that was good, an abundant world with ideal conditions for life. Why? Because God gives. That's what he does. He's, it's grace God initiates, God creates a place for life. 
And in Isaiah 5, these, these conditions are ideal conditions for good fruit. So the vineyard owner goes to look for good fruit. He goes to look for justice and for righteousness. But he finds only bad fruit. This is what he says. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And Isaiah explains, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. What is it that happens in Jesus's story? The vineyard tenants are there to cultivate a good crop. And what is the crop they produce? What fruit is there in the vineyard? But when the servants come, verse 35, they beat one, they killed another and stoned a third. What fruit is there in the vineyard? There is bloodshed and cries of distress. And Isaiah's question hangs over, what more could have been done? Sin requires forgetfulness. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone who dwells in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it it on the waters. We live in a world that is made by God. Uh, We are made by God. Everything we have is from God. The air we breathe is from God. The food we eat is from God. Everything we have is not really ours. It is from him. And we only ever exist because of God's gift of creation. And the moment God stops giving, the moment he withholds his grace in creating, we would not exist. We owe everything to God. But sin forgets all of that. These farmers have a very short memory. This vineyard that has been lovingly prepared becomes a place of violence in their hands. Sin forgets. Sin fools. What is the plan of the farmers? The fruit's beginning to ripen on the vines. They see this delegation of servants coming to collect the fruit. And we're not told what they're thinking to start with. All we see is that they launch this attack, this violent, murderous assault. What happens in this vineyard is awful, sickening. And it gets worse. The owner sends more servants. And the murderous farmers repeat their violence. And then it gets worse. But when it gets worse, we learn their plan. Verse 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. We can see that that is crazy, isn't it? The inheritance is the vineyard. There is no way they are going to end up with the vineyard. And yet somehow in the way they see things, in the world they live in, they've become so deceived. How quickly we forget that deception is at the heart of sinfulness. Uh, the foolishness in this story is, is caricatured, it's outlandishly ridiculous, and yet it's the same foolishness in our hearts. Every time we do something wrong, it's because we believe a lie. Sin fools and sin fails. But their plan doesn't work, of course, does it? Inher- they want to get the inheritance, they're not going to get the inheritance. But whatever sin promises, it will not deliver. Sin promises us all kinds of things, happiness, wholeness, control, security, whatever we sin for will not deliver. Why? Why didn't it work for these farmers? Because it's not their vineyard. That's why it didn't work, wasn't it? 
However much they craved to be in control, they were not the owners. And why does sin fail for us? It's not our world. It's God's world. And so sin not only fails, sin faces fury. Think about this vineyard owner. He sends his servants to collect the fruit. And they are brutally murdered. Now what does he do now? Now, now, what does any reasonable standard of justice do at that first step? Now, if at this point Jesus said, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The listeners would have answered as they do in verse, 30, in verse 41. He will bring them to an end. But what does he do? He sends more servants. Can you find words to describe the kind of patience and forbearance? He sends more servants. And the second delegation are also murdered. So what does he do? Now, if Jesus asked now, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The listeners would have answered as they do at the end. But what does he do? Verse 37. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Surely. Surely they will respect his son. Surely they're not so corrupt to continue in this path of wickedness. Surely when the son himself comes, then they will do what is right. But no. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And now Jesus asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He's shown such patience. And, and at this point, the listeners, and we ought to be indignant, that there is rage in their response. The, the listeners feel the rage of the owner. This anger is the anger of a father whose son has been murdered. It's not unjust. It's justice raging in pure fury. What will he do to those murderers? The answer, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Uh, we are trying to look sin in its face. And I think this is perhaps the hardest point for us. Uh, we, we can talk about sin too lightly, too easily. We talk about it as oh, we, we made a mistake or we made some poor choices. And we can miss the awful significance of our sin. And, and this is a story that I think helps us, if we will, to feel the weight of it. To feel the weight of it in the heat of this father whose son has been murdered so awfully. We feel that indignation and we echo in our hearts the rightness of the answer. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Amen, we say. And there's a sense of self-approval, perhaps, as we're called to make that judgment. Now, those who Jesus spoke to who answered so rightly, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Those people who said that were about to act out this story for themselves and play the part of the tenants. Now, those who Jesus told this story to, they would take the son who was sent into the world and brutally murder him. So when they answer Jesus's question, they are passing judgment on themselves. And yet what of us? What of us? Now, we may not brutally murder the innocent, not quite in the way these tenants do. But we do much worse. And we are under an obligation to love 
and to honour and to obey the maker, the creator, the owner of the universe. Uh, the, the one who is, as the old preacher Jonathan Edwards says, he is a being infinitely lovely because he has infinite excellence and beauty. So sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous. Now perhaps, perhaps, I don't know if we can, but perhaps we can almost imagine the rage of this father whose son is murdered. Perhaps we can. But it's barely a beginning of the justice raging in the pure fury of God Almighty who we offend in sin every single day. And what do we think about it? No, do we think that like these tenants who obviously had no concern about justice, that these tenants who thought they could get away with it, they thought they would not answer for their crimes. What do we think about ours? And do we think that we will escape justice? In Paul's letter to the Romans, he writes, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Sin faces fury and then sin is finally about jesus look at this again verse 37 last of all he sent his son to them they will respect my son he said despite everything the wicked tenants have done to this point despite their sin the final revelation of their hearts is seen in how they treat the son now, these farmers, they rebelled against the owner of the vineyard. They refused to be faithful servants. They wanted to be the owners. They wanted to be God. But their rebellion is most revealed in how they treat the heir. Will they respect him or will they get rid of him? That's the root of all sin. There it is. It lies in how our hearts respond to Jesus, to the son of God sent into the world. Will we respect him or will we get rid of him? Now, the story of Jesus has, the story Jesus tells has got a, a devastating conclusion. You've heard it before. Look again at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Let's pause at this point. Enter that moment. They knew he was talking about them. That They knew he was describing the depths of their sin in their hearts. They knew that he was telling them that they have acted like ancient Israel and produced violence instead of justice. So what do they do? Surely now, surely they will respect the son who has been sent to them. Surely now that their sin has been revealed, they will turn from it. Surely. Surely not. What do they do? They looked for a way to arrest him. They responded to the story by acting out the story. That they continued on their path of wretchedness. Why? Because sin continues to forget and to fall and it will fail. And they will face the father's fury because they have rejected the son and they got rid of him. They proved the point of the story. And yet what is it for us? Christ isn't with us in the flesh for us to crucify. But just because we haven't got the opportunity doesn't mean we can't do the same in our hearts. The desire to get rid of him, 
That, that heart of sin, that's where sin is most seen to be sin. In our attitude to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Will we respect the Son? Or will we murder him from our lives? That is, will we ignore him? Will we refuse his right as heir to the world? Deny his, king, his kingship or kind of demote his significance to a dusty little ornament we hide away? Every day I think the father's question in the story haunts us. They will respect my son. Will we? Have we? Is that how we go into each day? We will respect the son. We will pledge our allegiance, our devotion to Jesus Christ. We will commit to Christ every thought, every word, every action. Will we? Do we? Uh, Jesus tells this story about sin. And there's a particular audience as he does it. This long history, it stretches back to Isaiah, this sin in the nation of Israel, especially their leaders. And yet if we miss what this story shows us about our sin, then we are putting ourselves in the place of these witless, wicked farmers. Now, Jesus did come to save his people from their sins. So when he tells a story about sin, we must pay very careful attention to what he says. We must consider what is revealed about the sin in our lives. But I began by talking about wonder. Uh, I asked what has wonder to do with a story about a vineyard. We could say now what has wonder to do with a story about sin. Well look with me at verse 42. Uh, immediately after Jesus concludes the story, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? He's going to bring some application from the Old Testament. He is going to quote from Psalm 118, the same psalm, that Hosanna psalm used as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the same one. What does he say? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Jesus brings this application because the story of the vineyard is not quite complete let's go carefully through this scripture he quotes first he says the stone the builders rejected that's the story of the vineyard the that the murder of the son in the story is not so much a parable but a prophecy the shock that we ought to feel as we look at what happened in the vineyard the gore of it and the violence of it it became a real event in history only a few days after at the beginning of hebrews says in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God sent his servants to the vineyard. He sent the prophets again and again and again and then finally. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. They will respect my son. But they didn't. They took him outside the city and they nailed him to a cross until he was dead. The stone the builders rejected. That that is the son, that is the heir of all things who was born into the world and they killed him. And what will the father now do to those builders, those tenants, those who killed his son? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And Jesus says in verse 43, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. That is their wretched end. They will not have a place in God's eternal kingdom of life and peace. They will be put outside where there's only and forever darkness and despair. 
The story of the vineyard is about this stone, this son, the builders rejected. But that is not complete. That's not the end of the story. It goes on. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejection of the stone and the murder of the son is not the end of the story. The Lord has done this. That the Lord himself will make this rejected son, this rejected stone, he will make him the one who is most vital to the building. Three times already Jesus has said to his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem and there I will be killed, I'll be handed over. That's the story of the vineyard. And then Jesus said, after three days, I will rise again. The Lord will raise the son, he will make the son the center of everything. He will be the cornerstone. And so, verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. It's a reference to Isaiah 8. It explains that those who do not trust the Lord will stumble on this stone. It's explaining that faith, faithlessness is most clearly revealed when people reject Jesus Christ. It's all about how we respond to Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes on to say, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. It's a reference to Daniel 2, a prophecy about the coming unstoppable kingdom of God that will last forever. Jesus has said the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is that stone, the one rejected and murdered and the one raised to life and set as the cornerstone in the kingdom of God. So now participation in the kingdom of God is decided on how someone responds to Jesus. Do they build on the cornerstone? That's how Jesus completes his story about sin. See, this is Jesus's story about sin. Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sins. The the story of sin that really describes the sin of all. And it describes the the, the fury of pure justice that our sin deserves. And in the middle of it stands the storyteller. And as he tells this story that exposes our sin, he offers himself clearly as the cornerstone, the one upon whom we can build our lives, the one upon whom we can trust our lives because his death, his rejection, it was the Lord's doing because his death was a sin saving death by suffering the fury of pure divine justice in our place. So eternity now, the eternal kingdom is built on this one who died, this one who rose, who died for our sins, who rose for our vindication, so that our only hope for now and forever, the only way for us to receive the kingdom, the only way for us to belong to the kingdom of heaven is to trust Jesus Christ. The Lord has done this. And so as we come to a close, we ask, what do you make of all that? what do you make of it as you consider the Lord Jesus right now what is your response as you consider him as the rejected stone and as the murdered son what is your response as you consider him bearing sin and being crushed under divine fury what is your response as you consider him dead and and then buried and you consider that third day when the tomb, was, the tomb was opened and empty and this rejected stone burst forth as the cornerstone. What is your response? 
No, as you try to get your mind around this, this Jesus Christ, that he is most precious. He is most vital. He is inexpressibly vital, vital in his person and vital in his work, unsurpassed in the immensity of his significance. When you consider him, what's your response? Look at the scripture. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Wonder. Is that your reaction? Is that your reaction when you ponder all of this? That you know in your belly that it is more than can be explained, more than can be understood, but it is breathtaking and it's heart thumping and it's staggering and there's even delight. It is marvellous in our eyes. And do you see how this isn't speaking about something that's kind of objectively marvellous in a sense that you can kind of study it and write a report on it and submit it away This isn't just kind of merely, oh, I understand that this is wonderful. This is astonishingly subjective. It is marvellous in our eyes. This is the way that we see it. This is our personal reaction to what is put before us. In our eyes. In in your eyes. Do you see it as a wonder? The, The sight of Christ. Does it draw joy from your heart? That's where the psalm goes, the psalm that Jesus, is quote, that Jesus quotes. The next verse says, let us rejoice today and be glad. The psalm ends and says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. So ask, what is it in your eyes? And if it's not marvellous, or, or, or if it's just a little bit marvellous, Why? Now, why is it? Why is it that we can consider the infinite loveliness of the Lord Jesus and, and shrug, yawn? Now, what, what is that? What do we call that? Isn't, that? isn't that unbelief? Isn't that sin blindedness? And maybe our capacity for wonder has been wilted, been clogged up with nonsense. Maybe. But what of it? What will you do with how you are responding right now? The psalm says, let us rejoice today and be glad. So shall we? Now maybe we will because because the joy flows freely and sweetly and bubbles and our hearts are lifted up, maybe. Or or maybe because the joy is dry and the, the gladness is muffled and Maybe because we're rejoicing, but our teeth are gritted. Maybe because there are even tears in our eyes as we do it. But, but we sense, we sense that the little we see of Christ's glory are like pinpricks in the night sky. Just the beginning and we thirst and we hunger and we groan for more. So let us rejoice today and be glad and pray for him to be more and more marvellous in our